you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49, we're going to be looking at a passage here, trying to get a better understanding of what uh, it's speaking about, and see if we can make some modern application to us today. Now, if you look at Genesis chapter 49, you'll see that Jacob has been, uh, he, he has set forth uh, the chance to bring all of his sons before him. Israel has called his children. He's going to speak to them in this chapter, and he's going to give them what appears to be a prophecy concerning their lives and what's going to happen. Now, this isn't the first time that we've seen this. You can read through the book of Genesis, and you'll find uh, many other instances where a father will call in his child, and he will tell them uh, what their inheritance is going to be, what's going to happen. But there's something unique about what you find in chapter 49 that's a little stranger than what you'll find elsewhere. Uh, of course that you'll find prophecy, but as he's going through each one of these sons, he's going to tell them what's going to happen in their life. Um, it's easy to see as you read through here that this chapter is shrouded with obscurities. There's lots of things that you'll read and you kind of scratch your head and you think, all right, why are these things in here? What's the purpose of them being found in, in this book? Uh, what's unique about them? Some of them we just have to walk away and say he said it to his sons and it's going to, it's going to happen in some way. Now, one of the most familiar passages to us, and the one that we're going to be spending our time with tonight, is in verse 10. This is in the middle of a section where Jacob is acknowledging his son Judah. Now, as if we remember back on certain stories about Jacob's children, uh, we learned that uh, the family household was a little off. There were things that happened with 12 sons that in some way, you can kind of understand where they're coming from, and in other ways, I can't even imagine why they would do the things that they did. The most prominent story to us is them selling their little brother into slavery. Now, I understand what it's like having a relationship with a brother, an older brother, but never have I ever, at least to the best of my knowledge, considered my brother willing to sell me into slavery. I haven't thought of something like that, but you see this family dynamic, and you look through their life, and you look at their different stories, and you think, how is it that Jacob sees his children living in this way, and the stories continue to grow, and they grow, and they grow? Since our story tonight, what we're going to be focusing on is Judah, we need to consider what happened in Judah's life by mentioning Genesis chapter 38. If you haven't familiarized yourself with stories in the Old Testament, I would encourage you to look at each one of these sons and see what they did. Specifically, Judah, in Genesis chapter 38, you'll find a lot of things that just don't sit well with us. You'll read through the story of Judah, and you'll find out that his son comes from an unlawful relationship with his daughter-in-law. You'll find that the things were not meant to happen in this way, but... It's the Messiah that comes from this family. Later on, we're going to be getting to Matthew chapter 1 and the genealogy of Jesus, and you'll find that Judah, of course, is mentioned there along with his son that was begotten by his daughter-in-law. And you can read Genesis 38 to find that. But as you think about that story and that chapter and some other things that may flood your, your mind, you come to this, what appears to be a prophecy, what appears to be this, this exhortation to a child in you start to ask questions. You begin looking at verse 9. It says, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. Binding his fowl to the vine and the donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine 
and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now, on first glance, you look at this, and there's some things that we can draw application from. There's other things that I don't even want to touch the hem of the garment. I don't understand exactly what's going on, but there's something important about Judah and what he has to offer and what's going to come from him. Understanding that there are blessings and there are cursings that are going to come from this chapter, what we find in verse 10 is Jacob looking down the scope of time and looking at Judah and saying, the scepter will not depart from you. Now, if we stop and we think for a minute here, Judah's not a king. He's not the ruler of some great nation. He doesn't have people paying tribute to him. He doesn't have a ruler's staff sitting between his feet. But Jacob looks at him, he says, the scepter will not depart from you. I would almost think that this is something that would be reserved for Joseph and some of these other guys that come later on because, you know, we see the visions of, uh, you know, the, the wheat bowing down, the, the other brothers and the family bowing down to Joseph. But he's talking about Judah here, and he says, the scepter will not depart from you. Now, inquiring minds, we'll look and we'll, we'll consider what this means to us. You can already start drawing application in the life of Jesus where he says that he is the king of the Jews. He is the the Lion of Judah. We take some of those imageries, we take some of those name designations, and they come from this prophecy, from this verse that we find here in verse 10 out of Genesis 49. And for us to be able to understand what's going on here, we're going to have to piece a couple of things together in the Jewish mind. Very recently, I came to an understanding of this passage because I started considering how is it that the Jews have missed Jesus? We look back over some of the major prophecies of the Old Testament, and we think this clearly is a prophecy of the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, the one that was prophesied long ago that he would come and he would walk on this earth, and he would have this birth, and he would have this life, and he would have this death. We see these prophecies, and we think these are the things that give us assurance that Jesus is who he truly says he is. Not just because I know he walked on this earth historically, but because God had prophesied about him long ago that Jesus would come and save us from our sins. How is it that the Jews missed Jesus? How is it that the Jews looked at this man right in front of them and they missed all 300 plus prophecies that pertain to him? How is it they'll read these prophecies and they'll think, that doesn't, that doesn't fly. That's not the, the Messiah. That's not the one I'm looking for. Did they just not have the right understanding Were they too stubborn? Were they truly ignorant of God's word? What was it that allowed them to miss Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the one who was prophesied, the one who was spoken by God long ago? As I said, there's 300 plus prophecies that we could look at, and I just want to look at one and expound on it. As we consider this phrase, the scepter of Judah, the lion of Judah, Jesus, We come to the next part of the verse, and it says, nor the ruler's staff shall depart from between his feet. Some of your translation, and this is where things get a little little cumbersome. This is where we need to study a little bit more. As I realize we look across this congregation, we have a lot of different translations that are here. I particularly, I use the English Standard Version. I know a lot of you use New American, New King James, King James, and a host of other uh, verse, uh, translations as well. What you'll find out as you read through here, and even as we saw up on the board uh, right before uh, I got up here to begin to preach, that New American Standard and the ESV have a little different wording. And there's other terms in here that we need to determine what do they mean. But as you look here, the ruler's staff shall not depart from between his feet. Some of you may have the lawgiver. 
will not depart from him. Or justice will not depart from him. This idea of a ruler's staff, the idea of a scepter intertwined with a lawgiver, someone who's in charge, someone that gets to make decisions for what's going to happen and why it happens. You see, Judah is told that this is going to pertain to him. Now, I wonder, as he heard this, as his father's speaking to him, I wonder if pride came to him. As he's considering some of these things, he's thinking, I'm supposed to be a king. I'm supposed to be a lawgiver. There's going to be a staff between my feet. I get to be in charge of my brothers. I get to be in charge of everything else. How sad it is when he gets older and he realizes that doesn't pertain to him. Very quickly, I think a man will be able to realize when he is not the lawgiver, when he's not the one in charge. And furthermore, as you see the end of the verse, all peoples are not listening to him. Already from this part of the verse, we can see that something more is going to come from here. There's something else that is being described here. There's someone else that's going to have all law given to them. The ruler's staff, the one that gets to make all the decisions, he will sit there and he will have the scepter of Judah and he will be able to decide what happens. Now the next part that we get to is another one that is not translated equally across all the translations. The ESV says, until tribute comes to him. Now, if you're in the New American Standard, and if you saw up on the board, it says until Shiloh comes. If you have a different translation, some other more modern ones out there, it says until he comes to Shiloh. Now, this is strange when we begin to read it. And this is part where I want to encourage you to study some more. We need to consider some of the harder things in scriptures and and not just gloss them over, but understand what do they mean. What is this part of the passage referring to? Why did the ESV choose until tribute comes to him? Now consider the, the verse as a whole. It says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah until tribute is paid to him. So when tribute is paid, then the scepter shall depart, right? That, uh, that's what the, the logic of the verse would say. So when is this tribute being paid? So that's the ESV. Now let's consider the New American Standard, until he comes, until Shiloh comes, Well, that means that a particular individual will come and the scepter will not depart from Judah until he walks on this earth. Okay, so Judah would have this reigning king forever and ever until a particular person arises. Now, as we're gonna continue this study, we will trace down the lineage of Judah. We'll trace down particular kings that will all acknowledge that they are part of this scepter that belongs to Judah. And they're all looking forward to someone that still holds the staff of the law, that still holds on to the scepter of Judah. They were looking for something more. Another rendition of this verse is until he comes to Shiloh, which is a particular location. Uh, At one point in history, uh, you'll find that's where the Ark of the Covenant rests at one point. But in this particular time period, Shiloh doesn't exist. It's not a city. Now, I I weigh that on you, and I want to consider those things because I think it's necessary for us to understand what is this verse really pertaining to. Is it someone that is to come that all people are looking toward? If we want to understand the Jewish mindset, if they're looking for a Messiah, they're looking for someone, and they give us an understanding of what this verse means, and we'll expound on it even further. But I want you to hold that phrase in your mind as we'll consider the last one as well. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now that that phrase, sorry, that word peoples, you find it over and over again throughout the Old Testament in reference to nations a lot of times, but 
diverse people, not one particular group, but all people. Apparently, their obedience will come to some individual. Now, if you were to ask Judah, all right, you heard this, and and your dad spoke it to you, do you have all people bowing down to you? Can you say that all nations are in obedience to you, that they all obey what you say? Judah very quickly would have to say, that's not true at all. (laughs) That's not in my life. Maybe my son that I begot through my daughter-in-law. Maybe it was him. Maybe it was someone else, and you would ask him, and so forth and so forth. All nations aren't bowing down to them. I find this prophecy unique. And I find it to be something that we need to start our journey to understand Jesus. As we consider the scepter shall not depart from Judah or the scepter of Judah, I want us to consider Jesus as the king. That's our goal tonight as we go on this discovery. Does Jesus fit the mold of being the king of Israel, the one who is to come? To understand this further, let's go to uh, Numbers chapter 24. Numbers 24. As you read the Old Testament, you find that the stories get more unique as you continue on. In, Genesis, in uh, Numbers chapter 22 through 24, you find a man named Balaam. If you're familiar with the story of Balaam, this is the man that his donkey spoke to him. That should be able to stick out in your mind in Numbers chapter 22 that Balaam had to be taught a lesson and it came from his donkey that he was riding. Uh, the, the New Testament plays on this as well in Second Peter chapter 2 and you can get an understanding of it. But it, it's something that's unique to us. It's something that we need to look at and think, this man, we need to pay attention to him. God chose to speak to him through the mouth of a donkey to get his attention. I think we should pay attention to him. As he's going along, he is told, you are to go speak to nations. You're to go speak to certain men and tell them they need to obey God rather than men. And so Balaam is given four different oracles, four different pieces of prophecy to look for further power than what's found in the hands of men. The one that I want to look at is his third one in Numbers chapter 24. I'm going to start in verse 15. It says, and he took up his discourse, speaking of Balaam, and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be uh, dispossessed. Sarah also, his enemies, shall be disposed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. Now, you've already picked up on at least one key phrase in there that is going to associate with the life of Jesus. A star shall come out of Jacob. We're going to see an actual physical star that's going to come out that's going to guide us to the Savior later on. But as Balaam is speaking these things, and he's telling the other nations, he's talking about something that's going to happen later on. All people are looking for this point. When is God going to be in charge? It seems like there's so much chaos. There's so many different things that are going on when you look at the world through men's eyes. They're looking for power struggles. They're looking to be in charge. They're looking at doing everything themselves. But Balaam comes in, and over and over again, you find out God says, I'm going to be the one that's in charge. I'm the one that holds all power. Balaam stops, and he considers these things. He says, I have seen the words of the Lord Almighty. 
the one who sits on the glorious throne, the one who is in charge, and he's told me about something that I do not see. He has told me about something that is not near to me, something that we are all looking forward to. Over and over again in the Old Testament, everyone is looking forward. They realize that where they are in their certain situation in life, that there is more than what they see and what they experience. I mean, that has immediate application to us. We're always in the now. We're looking for what's right in front of us instead of really considering what will happen later on. But as you begin to ask the Jews, what were you looking for? When you're thinking about a king, what were you looking for? What kind of man were you looking for? What was he going to do? If this man is going to hold the scepter of Judah, if he's going to sit as this king on a throne and the, uh, all nations will come to him and, and people will consider his words and, and people will be obedient to him, what kind of king do you want to sit on the throne? And what was their top draft? What was their number one pick when you get to 1 Samuel? When you transition out of the time of the judges, who did they pick to rule over them? Saul. Now, that's another one that you can read all of his stories and consider the things that he did. Was he good in the sight of God? Originally, God had great plans for him, but he stepped outside of it. A man who sat on a throne that could have made great, uh, great decisions for Israel, you find him stepping outside of the will of God and making bad decisions. And you find out that he's not actually supposed to be in charge. Someone else will come. I want us to go to 1 Kings, or excuse me, 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 16, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. Now, if we're tracing down where this king is supposed to come from, which tribe is he supposed to be found in? Judah. You see, everyone was looking for it. The, the primitive Jews, their knowledge began to grow about God. They were looking for a king, and God says, look, you missed it. You chose Saul to be your king. It's my turn to pick. It's my turn for you to see all the dots being connected. My king will come from the line of Jesse. My king will sit on the throne that I have chosen. And already there's a little hint of something we need to consider here. Samuel was told to go and fill his horn with oil. Now, not to get into too much of a language study, but the word Christ is the, the Greek translation for the Hebrew term Messiah. A Messiah is one that is anointed. So as you're reading your English Bible, when you come across the word Messiah, Christ, or anointed, they all are associated meaning the same thing. It is someone that has been anointed, particularly with oil. But oil is just a physical side of what's happening behind the scenes. When a priest is anointed, God picked them. When a king is anointed, when a prophet is anointed, when those three offices are assigned by God, he says, that is my person. I want you to anoint them with oil so all people know I have chosen them. Samuel's told, take your oil and go. I'm going to show you who to pick. 
And as we know, as they go down through the sons of Jesse, you come across David. At a very young age, he's told that he is to be king. This causes a power struggle between Saul and David, but that's what happens when you put men in charge without vision of what God has seen, and Saul missed that. As you continue in David's life, you find him looking towards God. Because we transition from people acknowledging that the scepter will remain with Judah to then, who is the son of David? David was a man after God's own heart. He heard the words of God and he wanted to apply them. All people looked to David and they said, this is the kind of king we want to rule over us. This is the kind of king that we want to acknowledge day after day. But what they got instead were people that came after Solomon. I want you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 12, starting in verse 16. When you use the, uh, the term, the divided kingdoms, um, it comes from the story that we find in 1 Kings chapter 12. Two kings are trying to decide who's in charge, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Makes it easy for memorization. But in 1 Kings chapter 12, starting in verse 16, this is what happens. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then the king of Rehoboam sent Adoram as his taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. Now, how fitting of a description is that when we think about the Jews killing Jesus? As they're speaking about it, they're saying that no one was loyal to the house of David. They missed it. The Jews should have realized that we need to stick with what God has designed. The power struggle, the the men, they made the kingdom tear apart, and it hadn't been consistent ever since then. But as this divides out, you find a remnant wanting to stay in Jerusalem, wanting to worship correctly or trying to as much as they can, looking forward to who was going to sit on the throne. Little by little, we're piecing together a story of a king You see, the people at this point, they realize that things aren't looking good. They realize that the kingdom has been destroyed when David had sinned against Bathsheba, sinned with Bathsheba against God. God told him, look, your kingdom will not be the same. Your house will have turmoil in it over and over again. What you did in secret, things will happen in the sun. Over and over again, they saw that the kingdom was falling apart. They were looking for something more. They wanted somebody to rule over them that would make sense of what was happening in front of them. Those that remained in Jerusalem at this point, they had a king over them that chose to uh, follow after himself instead of God, but they stuck with it. They were looking for something more. And I think the reason why is because David encouraged them from very early, uh, from very early on. If you go to Psalm chapter 2, you get into these songs of David. I want you to look at this one. In Psalm chapter 2, I'm going to start in verse 1. I want you to think about David penning this as he's thinking about the people around him. And as they are considering the songs that he was writing, and they're going back and reading these over and over again, trying to be encouraged by what's happening in front of them. In Psalm chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says, Why do the nations rage? 
and the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against who? His anointed, his chosen, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. If you can't see Jesus in this verse, you're missing a lot. But what's funny is the Jews read this, and they, they start to connect things, and they still miss him. But what Jesus fulfills is this idea of God being in charge and being able to handle it. I love verse four. He sits in the heavens and laughs. You know, I think about God looking down on what has happened. As he's planning his son coming on this earth, he's not laughing at the demise of man. He's not looking at it and saying, ha ha, you deserve everything that you got. I think part of this is he laughs because he knows who's actually in charge. I think he's laughing because he knows that there's hope coming. When all may be discouraged, when you have a king writing this that uh, maybe is fulfilling all things according to God's plan, he laughs because he knows that he has something better planned that's not by the hands of men. That no man can strategically place, only God can do it. He said, I will set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now let's go to Matthew chapter 1. As we look at these verses, and there's many more that we could have looked at, but time would fail us. As we look in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew being a Jew, not only wants to tell us about Jesus, but he wants to give hope to the Jews that missed it. Matthew's writing years after Jesus has died. What would you write to a group of people that missed their king? What would you write to a group of people that you needed to teach that you need to show that they miss something vital. He starts by giving us a genealogy. Can we trust Jesus? Can you trust him that he is who he says he is? Trace down his lineage. Who does he come from? He comes from Judah. What's fascinating, though, is you just study Matthew and his genealogy. There's multiple women that he mentions. Luke doesn't do that in Luke chapter 2 with his genealogy. He actually reverses it and uh, he doesn't include them. But what Matthew does, he wants you to see what God can bring out. In verse 3, he mentions Tamar. In verse 5, he mentions Rahab. In verse 6, he mentions the wife of Uriah. Just a little bit of a reminder just a little subtleties of, look, 
You have a, a prostitute in this lineage, Rahab. You have a man, Judah, that has sons, twin sons, through his daughter-in-law. And you have a king and another king that comes from a marriage that was brought forth by adultery first. If God's able to take those things and bring about a Messiah, what do you think he's able to do to the chaos around us? In chapter two, when Jesus is born, you have a group of wise men coming from the east a long ways away, and you find in Matthew chapter two, verse two, they come into the town and they're speaking to the king that sits on the throne in Israel. And they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw what? His star. When it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. This group of wise men come before him and they said, we're looking for the king. He would think, excuse me, um, you're in my throne room. You're speaking to the king. They said, no. <laughs> excuse me, but you missed it. Continue reading. Look at the, the interaction they have in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, uh, he trembled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired at them where the Messiah, the Christ, he who is anointed, where he was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judah. For so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. I think it's ironic, but probably more sad than it is ironic. They had to inquire where the Messiah would come from. You know, we take that for, you know, uh, for granted. If I were to ask you, all right, where was the Messiah supposed to be born? You'd say, in Bethlehem, the house of David. For them, they couldn't figure it out. They didn't know why these things were happening around them. They couldn't figure it out because they had forgotten God. And his king was right in front of them. Some people figured it out. In Matthew chapter 21, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem in his last week on this earth, what did they do? They put, they put out a royal welcome. A king that comes in riding on a, a colt of a donkey. They take palm branches, they take uh, their robes and they lay them down on the ground and they say, Hosanna to the son of David. Apparently somebody figured it out. Somebody realized that he was the king that was prophesied about. What hung over his head when he was on the cross? Behold, the man who said he was a king. No. Look at John chapter 18. John chapter 18 is Jesus is speaking to Pilate as he's about to be tried and he's about to go to his death. In John chapter 18, starting in verse 33, it says, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, I, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews but my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. 
chapter 19, verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. One small portion of Jesus' life. We could spend hours and hours speaking about all the great things that he did, but one thing that we need to consider is that he sits as a king. Now, we need to take this out of our physical mind. We need to, to take this out of this man that's going to sit on a throne because that's what the Jews were looking for. They were looking for an anointed one that was going to fill the role of David, that was going to do a better job even than what David was able to do. He was going to have this scepter. He was going to do all these great things. He was going to be mighty, and he was going to lead them to victory over all nations. All nations would flood to him. He would sit on the throne of David, and people would listen. And they would obey and they would reach prominence. They would reach what they were looking for. But what we have is a king that was killed and was buried but was raised again. And his throne is at the right hand of God. And he is asking all people to come to him. He's asking for all people to bow down and to acknowledge him as the ruler of heaven and earth, the one that upholds all things, the one who was in the beginning. Paul comments on this as we uh, consider these last things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 24, listen to what Paul says in the middle of a whole section about resurrection, the life that is to come. He says, then comes the end. Well, we'll start in 23. It says, but each to his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. The role of king, the role of, the, of Jesus as king is to bring all people to God. To be in control so we don't have to be. Why do we follow after, uh, after leaders? It's because they're in charge. Why do we trust Jesus to deliver us from the, the grips of death? Because he's in charge. What I want us to understand and realize as we study Jesus as king is we have to let him be the ruler and not us. When men are in charge, things fall apart. When Christ is in charge, he is ruler of all things, ready to hand it over to God. So my question for you tonight is do you trust him to be in charge of your life? Do you trust him to be a ruler of a kingdom that is not founded on this earth? One that is spiritual, that requires not only our physical selves, but our spiritual selves. Are you willing to submit to him that he may be in control of all your thoughts and all of your actions? Are you ready to be in his kingdom? If you're here tonight and you haven't acknowledged him as king, you haven't put your life in him, it's time for you to die to yourself and to be buried with him. Paul tells us we're buried with him when we are baptized into him clothed in Christ, united him in a death like his, that we may rise and walk in the newness of life so that we know that we have heaven. You can stop fighting, you can stop struggling, and you can put him in charge. Maybe you forgot that. 
Maybe you've made that decision long ago, but you've allowed things in your life to become rulers. You have been devoted to other things. It's time to denounce those and to serve God. If you've been distracted, if you've been overcome by things of this world, help, let us pray with you. Let us help you so that we can all reach heaven together. Consider the one that holds the scepter. They'll never depart from his hand. If you need anything, come as we stand and as we sing.